Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I'm happy to announce that the International Cultic Studies Association is conducting its annual international conference jointly with Infosect InfoCult of Montreal. The conference theme this year is Exploring the Needs of People Who Leave Controlling Groups, Relationships, and Environments. This virtual conference is 100% online and takes place from June 24th to June 26th and includes 70 speakers, 60-plus presentations on different topics, and five workshops. In this virtual conference, you can interact with speakers and attendees alike in chat spaces that encourage networking and collaboration. Some of this year's speakers are Jurette Bullion, Jennifer French, Chris Shelton, Deanna Levy, Joe Kelly, Maria Paragolis, Ron Burks, Joseph Zimhart, and many, many more. You can find out more about this year's conference and register to attend at icsahome.com. The presentations are available on the Whova platform for 30 days after the conference ends, and you may also continue to interact with speakers and attendees on the app. The registration fee is $125 US dollars. The student registration fee is 50 US dollars and scholarships are available. We look forward to seeing you. Hi everybody. I wanted to take a moment to address what's happening here in the United States with regard to the recent Supreme Court decisions. While we are not typically a political show, and these issues are some of the most polarizing in politics, we felt the need to address the elephant in the room, or to borrow a phrase from those currently protesting, the elephant in the womb. Since religious extremism and patriarchal control are such commonly recurring themes in our interviews, we simply could not ignore what's going on in the streets and in the hearts and minds of Americans and women and men worldwide. While, of course, we respect those whose beliefs and religious convictions led them to choose for themselves how they do or do not pursue a pregnancy, it's important that we recognize not only everyone's freedom to choose, but that we act to ensure systems of control do not erode those freedoms. Whether it is certain groups that we've talked about that have forced their members to have abortions and then hide the fact that they do it behind some sort of cloak and they call themselves churches, or the evangelical Christian church's decade-long fight to take away that right whether part of the church or not. As you likely already know, last Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, ending nearly 50 years of the constitutional right to abortion. In an opinion reflecting the 5-4 majority, a draft of which had been leaked last month, Associate Justice Samuel Alito declared that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, 
Nearly half of the states are expected to issue all but total bans on abortion, and 13 states already had quote-unquote trigger bans in place to outlaw abortion as soon as Roe was overturned. The court's decision will make it even harder for people to get access to reproductive care, forcing them to travel hundreds of miles to access a clinic, which only hurts them and the child. Those who are already struggling, namely low-income people and people of color, will undoubtedly be the hardest hit, as they always are. We will be covering these issues directly with some experts in the coming weeks, but for now, we simply felt it necessary to offer our deepest sympathies to those who will be most affected by those recent events, as well as those ex-members of high-control groups who are experiencing post-traumatic stress symptoms from this assault on the bodily autonomy of women. In the show notes of this episode, you will find links on how to help those in need find safe and affordable care for their health needs, as well as organizations offering actionable steps toward a more just system for all women. Please take a moment to see how you can help. Judges can't just wake up one day and say, I have an agenda, I like guns, I hate guns, I like abortion, I hate abortion, and walk in like a a royal queen and impose you know, their will on the world. You have to wait for cases and controversies, which is the language of the Constitution. I have not made any commitments or deals or anything like that. We must start right now to be relentless to restore and guarantee all of our rights here in the United States of America. I am angry because of who will pay the price for this. This will fall on the poorest women. I have seen the world where abortion is illegal and we are not going back. You don't get back Today, we have part two of my conversation with Zach Bonney. Last week, he talked about how he left some of the treatment centers that he was sent to. And I have to use the word treatment in air quotes because there wasn't a lot of treatment done, but a lot of damage done. And Zach talks today about not only having left and the books that he wrote because of his experiences, but talks more in depth about his experiences within these programs and what he's learned since then and the lingering impacts that they've had on him long-term. 
Zach Bonney is the author of Dead, Insane, or In Jail. And Zach takes readers into the inner workings of the facility where he lived and the impact the school had on his hyperstimulated young mind. He went on to write another book too, and we will give you the information for his books and where to reach him and to find his work. I am very happy for you to be able to hear part two of my conversation with Zach Bonney. It's very powerful. Here's Zach now. I'm wondering about your experiences at CDU and also then Rocky Mountain Academy and how they're different from each other or the same, you know, that you went from one place into another. And also what was the progression there that you, that you left CDU or were taken out or what, what happened? I went only to one of the CDU schools and that was the one in Idaho. I've never been to CDU in California. When I ran away from Rocky Mountain Academy, I got sent on a program called SUS, School of Urban Wilderness and Survival. And actually they've got their own scandals. They've got a body count. So those are the two programs that I went to. You know, I think we enter into some really important conversation in talking about wilderness therapy. I know that when I went on survival, it was a punishment for running away from RMA. I don't know how else to put it. Like, I thought I was going to kill my counselor. Like, I was put into a situation where I felt so desperate. I really thought I was going to die. I was so, so angry on top of the anger of having been at this place that I had to run away from and being lied to by an officer. You know, I lived in a foster home. All these things happened. And I'm from Virginia. And this is all happening out in Idaho. And um, I grew up in a way that I couldn't have ever grown up after survival. There was, uh, again, with neuro-linguistic programming, like there were words that had new meanings, like the word responsibility or the word accountability meant I had to build a trap that would catch a critter. Accountability meant if I didn't make a fire, I was going to be very cold that night. And so the words themselves shifted because I, and in a way I'm that that's like, it might be like a real coming of age moment for me, but it was all under this guise of punishment. And we don't know what we're going to do with this kid. And, and I was just depressed and wanted to be home with my parents. And instead I was out there starved. This guy was like swatting food out of my hands. At one point, my editor did a search for that guy and found out he still works with kids. I mean, I can't do that search because I'll want to go and find him and throttle him. I, it's really like, I felt like this man tortured me. And he was only like 25 or 26 at the time. And I was 14. So I guess um, in a way, I put in the book that I felt like going on survival was enough of a kick in the ass. It, it did all of the things my parents kind of wanted these three years of programs to do, but instead I went back. And so I was ready now to believe I was primed. I was ready for the, the brainwashing. I was ready for the coercive institutionalized persuasion. I was ready for it, but that's what it took for me. It, I had to get physically broken down and think that I was going to die before I would begin to accept these messages that I wouldn't accept before. And I think that's why I feel when the second book hasn't gotten its, its attention is because it's really hard to show how a you change how you think 
how you perceive and how you feel changes. And that happened to me there. And I wanted to portray that. It is also so ironic with these words, because words like responsibility and accountability, they should, I think, apply to the staff. And instead, all of these words apply to the kids. But kids have an opportunity or they have, a, I guess, their responsibility is to grow, to learn, to develop, to do a lot of things. The accountability should be placed on the adults in these situations, but there isn't. There, There's no oversight. There's no one watching what they're doing. And so they actually are unencumbered by these terms, responsibility and accountability. And so they can do or say whatever they want, but you were treated, it seems to me, like a criminal and beyond that you were really tortured and abused, neglected, to be hungry and to have food swatted out of your hand. I mean, what's the message? What are you supposed to be getting from that? And what did you do to cause that? And and in these situations, I hear over and over again that the, the punishment never fits the crime because the crime really usually isn't a crime. Right. And a child's ability to be able to recognize those things is also limited. So, you know, there's a real thing there where Asking a person to take responsibility for themselves when they have a mental incapacity, where they haven't reached a maturity level, it's not a fair ask, you know, and um, we were all asked to do those very unfair things. And, um, you know, the, the level, you know, it's going to mess with somebody's psychology when they say bad things about their parents. And that's the first step in these places is that this is a safe place for you to vent about being here. You know, like in some ways, you know, you hear people say, well, we weren't allowed to complain. I don't I don't remember that being the case. I remember that in raps, we were allowed to because they wanted us to get into this states of hysteria and frenzy. And for me, it was like talking about how unfair it felt. And um, so when you talking poorly about your parents was one of the kind of first steps because that was how you could get somebody who had never been in one of these situations to start talking. You know, there's always the hang ringing and, you know, people were like chewing on their nails. I was remembering these welts I used to get on the inside of my mouth because I was chewing and chewing and chewing until it would bleed. I mean, like, and when I talk to people about this, because I have people who reach out to me, I'm like, man, there were so many of these things. People were yanking out their hair and Um, And then there's another piece of this that I have to mention. I knew that some people were being abused in ways that most people wouldn't believe were happening. Like people just couldn't believe that our counselors were going to rape other students. And they did. And I knew about this for like 10 or 12 years. And I like, it was weird how I finally came around. It was like, I just can't see that there's good in these people. I, and I, I started to kind of ask a lot more questions. And a lot of the time it was, um, a former student who'd become a staff and they would get engaged in behaviors, but not all the time. Sometimes it was simply just adults that were there. So when it comes to the advocacy work and the, you know, what my lane is, it's been kind of hard because People are so interested in the salacious and they want, you know, the body count and missing kids and rapes. And I, 
in the books really wanted to show that this is a tragic thing that happens to every person. That they have their like identities broken down and that their mental capacities now become something for the program to exploit. And then how we would prove our belief. And that, that's another piece is, is how we proved our belief to these counselors and to the system was by screaming at one another, by self-loathing and doing all of the things that, you know, a typical cult would ask their members to do. So during these times, during these rap sessions, the more intense, the better, the more out of control, the better. So they wanted to get you into this state of frenzy. So then what, what was the purpose for that? Because then we would feel powerless. They were the only ones that had the answer. And, you know, it was a constant, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, you see this mounting application of, of simultaneous application of pressures and that there's also a simultaneous application of pressures from the individual to be part of the program. You know, there's like a whole list of things. To, uh, you know, if you read the book, you'll start to see how these things play together and how the words play together and how like, you know, you've got these kind of young staff that curse and smoke cigarettes and they want to bond with you and that they've been there before, and that they know how hard it is, and how brave you are. And they're the ones that give you these modicums of self-confidence when most of the time it's all the negative stuff. I think also to move to you coming out of these programs and you were saying that you got so broken down that that's when things really started to shift inside of you. I wonder what was helpful once you got out. A lot of people want to know what they need to do because they're in a situation now where this podcast is sort of their therapy or their kind of shot in the arm, you know, to try to make a change, but they're not even quite sure where to start. Was there a certain realization that you needed or realizations? What has been helpful to you? Well, let me say, I think I've had two windfalls. I've had the support of my parents in a way that I think not everybody has had. I mean, of course, it it wasn't easy and it was a long time coming, but let's be honest, financially, when I got out of there, I like, you know, I had to go back to a year and a half high school. (laughs) So like, I still was unprepared for the work life. And especially in New York City, when I got out. So there was, there were time times that I recognized that if I hadn't been from a wealthy family, I probably would have starved to death a long time ago. Secondly, and then, you know, that's, I don't say that lightly. It's, I do feel embarrassment. I do feel shame about it. But at the same time, I know that it helped me. Because it's hard to keep gainful employment when you think people are screwing with you. It's hard to keep gainful employment when you have a hard time hearing anything that's constructive criticism as you are so bad, you should just die. It's really hard to balance those, like, here's how you live your life when you haven't had practice. Uh, and, And by that same token, I was lucky enough to go to a college where independent thinking was encouraged. And they also had a high tolerance for my extended adolescence. When I said that thing earlier about there being worse programs and imposter syndrome, I was in handcuffs less than two months after I got out of that program. So there's a lot of things that people don't know that maybe when I write the next book, you'll see some of these things. A lot of people in the advocacy world, the programs that came later and were in multiple states because they were just like taking off the Bain Capital and the uh, Litchfield crew, that we weren't treated poorly enough is what some of my peers think. 
And that's why they don't, you know, you don't hear all that much about Zidu because of so much of the mistreatment was psychological. And I'm not saying that there wasn't physical, but not as pronounced as it was in some of the other programs. So going to Bard, where they were tolerant, whereas I didn't wind up in jail, where I so could have, or uh, in a drunk driving accident, which I so could have. There was a lot of high-risk behaviors. So I, I have to say those are the two things that I think that I had an advantage. I don't know how else to put it. And I, I really believe that something really shitty could have happened to me in my life if I hadn't had those two things. So sometimes when I speak with people who I knew at the program and hear about their lives afterwards, in some ways, even though both of our lives have been like really, really turbulent and pronounced by difficult turns, sometimes I have felt like I have had even more privilege. And also being able to kind of recognize the legal, like when one of the first podcasts I heard of yours was when you were with Paula Poundstone on that show and she asked you what the legal definition of a cult was. I mean, that was really, I don't know how you came up with that or if you had it in front of you, but you really nailed it. It's it's very difficult stuff and gaining my father's understanding about what I was trying to describe in the books was priority number one because he is kind of a very powerful person in this regulatory system uh, that was important to me so those are some of the advantages I had I guess how would I have been helped more this is going to sound like a double whammy so how do I how do I say this I believe that the whole like a, a good reason why CDU exists or did exist was that they created a need for more therapy so that we would be doing these exit, you know, whatever these counseling strategies with one another after the graduation of the program. So they kind of created a dependence on their system, very self-sealing as Dr. Lala would say. So by the same token, I felt like I had almost no contact with anybody from that program afterwards. And in a way, I'm glad but in another way, I'm like, what could they be thinking that they could know how vulnerable we are to the world and then just put us out there in it? So I, I kind of felt like maybe, gosh, maybe it should be mandatory counseling for anybody who gets out of any one of these programs moving forward. <laughs> maybe that would be a help. So that this is something that's just part of it. When you when you put your kid into a program, know that two years later, you're going to have to pay for another two years of therapy. Just know it. Right. At least, at least another two, right. You know, when it's actually a really good thing to watch out for, although it's hard when you're in it to notice that that's what's happening, that they're developing a need for more therapy. Parents also can be all too easily convinced that this group is helping children kind of uncover their issues. And so then they get parents to pay for more or to approve more time for their child to stay there or to have to endure more. And so if you go into, let's say, see a therapist and you don't seem to ever be done, first of all, that's, that's a sign. You, there, there does need to be an ending time or at least a break where you can take what you want from it and see if it applies into the world and if it's helped you or if it hasn't and, you know, and check in. But if you suddenly, and, and this is, I guess, what I want people to notice, and, and it's hard when, again, when you're in the system, if you're starting to feel like you're almost at the end of something, and then suddenly the person you're working with 
uncovers something huge or needs to suddenly convince you that you have all these other issues that we really haven't addressed yet, notice the timing because the timing plays a big role in being able to have a diagnostic tool in that moment to know if you're continuing for your benefit or for theirs. Because even if I have a client who wants to take a break, and I think there's a lot more to talk about, I would support them taking a break. I might say, actually, there are some other things, you know, that we've noticed or that we just touched on that we didn't really get fully through, but go for it. You know where to find me. But if there is this sense that someone is just not releasing their hold on you, and when it's come time for something to be done, and they suddenly need for you to be looking at all these other things that you hadn't even considered about yourself, then chances are they're making money off of it. They're getting power off of it. But again, when you're in the system, you're so handicapped you don't have the vantage point. You don't have the distance to be able to see it as a technique and to be able to see it as subterfuge and deception and, and a way to kind of keep limiting your ability to have independence and move on. And they, they get paid handsomely, all too handsomely for people to stay in there. But yeah, a lot of people leave feeling that there's much more wrong with them than there is. And there's much more that they are somehow up to than they realized and all of it. I'll tell you, when you think about what their brains have been through, when you think about the conditions that their brains have been living in, where there's like this constant threat of your uh, assault on your personal identity, where there's very little autonomy or none, where you can't make a decision on your own. That's another like big thing is, you know, how do people make decisions after being traumatized is like a whole science there, you know, you know, so, uh, it is interesting. And, um, uh, so I guess what, what I'm hearing is that there's a real lack of therapists that are qualified to talk about the cultic dynamics and the neglect and abuse maltreatment that happens in these programs. And that many, many thousands of people would benefit by, knowing that they had a place where they actually did feel safe speaking about that. Yeah. And I, there, there are too few people who, who do this work and I encourage people who are interested to please, please do it. Please get involved. I want to be able to have more people to refer people to, but what's also true is that what, what you have going against you, which is not at all your fault is that so many people still will not trust the the word of a teenager even if that former teenager is now an adult there is still this sense that you needed more than you were willing to admit or you were more troubled than you're you're really wanting people to know about or that you're being overly dramatic because teenagers can be dramatic so even in your telling of the story there's probably and you've probably experienced even though it sounds like you had some good therapists and that psychiatrist who was spot on uh, and who got it right away which is quite amazing but i think that there is a devaluation uh and um, and a non-believing of a teenager's interpretation then when you get discounted, when you finally get the the nerve, the courage to tell your story and someone says, well, eh, you know, you get that tone, you know, it probably wasn't that bad. 
or you get compared to other programs where it was worse. So somehow you don't have the right to be upset about what happened to you because it wasn't as horrible. I mean, people should not respond by doubting the messenger. And also, I think for anyone who feels like they've had it worse, you never want to compare trauma because for some per, for some people, physical trauma is worse and for others, emotional trauma is worse because there weren't physical signs that proved the trauma. So they were less believed because it was emotional and psychological rather than physical. Also, everyone goes into these situations with different wiring and it's going to impact people more or less and for different reasons. So you should never compare. Different resistance tolerance. Exactly. But you're right. How the brain perceives it is the key here because it's still a wolf. Whether the wolf is going to kill you or just cut off your leg, it's still a wolf. So your brain, and you know, Beth also is one of the people that, that speaks about this very concisely. You know, your brain still sees it as a major threat. So, you know, just because you weren't abused in the worst possible manner doesn't mean you haven't been affected. And um, something that you said also, uh, there's a lot that Mark has put in his book that I also touch on, but um, we did accept things that were way beyond our control. So like, you know, if our parents were poor, they got divorced or somebody died, like the program really like a cult, that was okay. If we took on the onus of things that really had nothing to do with us, that was great. Wow. How interesting. Okay. So I think also what would be helpful, if you don't mind, just as we're kind of finishing up, people will say that there are still phrases that rummage around in their minds that they have to still combat. And that they found ways sometimes to combat them. They found that internal response to it. But I wonder if you still have some phrases rummaging around and also how you've learned to either resist them or to speak back to them. Oh my God, they all hate me. Oh my God. <laughs> they all hate me. No, I, I, I don't have any of them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, I'm never going to say the right thing. Uh, yeah, I got a few of those. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So they all hate me. I'm never going to say the right thing. Uh-huh. Just small things like that. It's hard. Living shouldn't be this hard. And I, I, the amount of things that are reaction and reactive to my early life, uh, you know, this is why it's such a fascinating matter, whether it's Hollywood or a book or a conversation or a relationship. I mean, you know, who we were is who we, you know, we take some of that with us. and. Um, yeah, there's no doubt in my head that I've got some really negative feedback loops playing. And I don't think that there's anybody who went to one of these programs that doesn't. Now, maybe some people may have been able to adapt and react differently and um, more positively. But I got to say, I know a lot of people that didn't. We, there's so many subjects to be covered. I looked up a friend of mine who was in my peer group just before we got on. And I, I needed to confirm it. But he died. And I want you to know another part of this. It hasn't been written into the series yet, but it had a huge impact on me. After I was there for years, I'd been there for like, you know, two years or something. I was accused of making out with this kid who died and it didn't happen. But I wasn't told what we were accused of. And for about two months, I was punished accordingly. And um, when I wouldn't admit to having done this thing, the pun, it, it all just kind of went away. They realized that it, it, this was something that hadn't happened. It was something that 
either somebody thought they had seen it or somebody admitted to something. I don't know what happened. But I felt like the right thing for me to do as an adult after graduating, because it left a really bad taste in my mouth, was to go back and confront one of the counselors. And it turns out this guy has been in the industry up until I think maybe just a year or two ago. And his response was, hey, man, if it was out of touch, just let it be. And it took me like 18 years of upset to begin writing about that and how it made me feel because he gave me like the same answer a cult leader would give without acknowledging that he had punished me for like two or three months, that he had shamed me in front of the group for two or three months, and that he was wrong. And he didn't say, I was wrong. I hurt you. I apologize. He said, it's on you. And this was me as a 17-year-old trying to like you know, I'm going to go back there because I think this is the right thing to do. So I just want you to know that there's also false confessions as there are false accusations. You have this whole realm of things going on in these environments where the potential for harm and, you know, is just increased at such a magnitude. And, um, you know, I just, that's something that I have told my close friends about, but I don't think anybody really knows how much it affected it really hurt me. I'd, I'd done everything right in this place. So for that to happen, and it just shows you, I'm sorry, that it was a, it was a cult. And there's a, a lot of other examples that I've, of course, heard about. You know, this is something that happened to me, so I, I can speak about that. Really saddened by it, too, because, you know, this other guy, I've, you know, never talked to, never since. Right. There's a huge amount of sadness and things that f- will remain unresolved. I think also if you're looking for if you're looking for external resolution. And so most people are because it matters if someone has wronged you that you hear them say, you're right, I'm sorry, they acknowledge it. There are plenty of people who I talk to who are who are happy when their cult leader dies, but they're also really mad that they it happened before they had a chance to hear I'm sorry, or to at least let them know now that they were feeling brave enough to say what had happened to them and to say it out loud that, that the cult leader didn't have a chance to hear it. So things are left kind of in the ether, not feeling quite settled or resolved. And what helps is to do, I think, an internal resolution where you say, for example, these other people are either never going to feel like they can apologize because their psyche won't be able to tolerate it if they really can see all the harm that they've caused, or if they really are sadistic or pathological, they're not wired to care in that way. So they're not going to say they're sorry because they're not. And so I think that then it goes to you deciding to not need something from them anymore because they can't or they won't give it to you. And that's going to leave you just wanting something that you might not be able to get. That's a very hard thing. It's a very hard thing to give up kind of the hope for that, for that kind of resolution. And it's really wrong also, because when kids are wronged, they are healed so much by the adults in their life saying, you're right. I, I, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. It changes everything in their world. And when it doesn't happen, it, it's like you need to find other ways to hear it 
or to say it or to have other people say it, or to know that the reason that they're not saying that they're sorry doesn't have to do with you, or if you deserved to be given that apology. It says everything about them. That's also an insight that kids don't have when you're growing. It's so cruel, right? When you're growing up in a family system, you don't have an awareness, even with parents, that parents are coming into their role of being a parent, schlepping in all of their history and their wiring and their stuff. So when you're treated a certain way, it only partially has something to do with you if it has anything to do with you at all. And some of this, like you said, is is part of the human condition. I mean, even if you're a wholly integrated person without a lot of attachment problems, you know, you're still going to have unresolved issues when your parents die. You know, you're still going to have that. It's a very human and natural thing. And I mean, so I, I, I hear and understand that. Mm. So just as we're finishing up, what would you want people to know just about what would help if they, if people listening to this, and I know it happens a lot, if they have what we call these negative interjects, these messages that have been integrated, what, what can people do about it? What's good to say to yourself when those messages flood your mind? I don't have any good advice for that because I still am a victim of it myself. I lose complete track of perspective. And even though I know I've lost track of perspective, I can't easily bring myself back. I mean, yeah, some breaths. Let me give you an example. This is such a silly example. And it's it's really going to highlight this because it happened pretty recently. If I ever own a boat, it'll be called the lactose intolerant because I think that's a great name for a boat. So <laughs> I'm lactose intolerant because I've had Giardia a couple of times and other genetic factors, but mostly that. And I... Uh, Dropped one of my dairy pills at my brother's house, and um, they have a newborn. My sister-in-law found this pill that you know wasn't you know didn't have a label on it, even though I know it was just a dairy pill that had fallen out of this bottle. I felt like, oh my god, like I could have killed this kid. I uh, I can't be around children. He brought up all this drug, like they don't know what this pill is. They they're gonna think. Uh, fentanyl or you know some it was like i lost complete perspective and was so shameful for no reason by the way no reason but um i almost left like you know the vacation house and didn't come back like i was just gonna leave and not tell anybody because i felt so crappy and what really brought me back was calling another person who'd been in one of these programs and telling them what happened and having them say why don't you just go to your sister-in-law and tell her it was a dairy pill? But I couldn't. I was too freaked out to like do anything because I thought they thought all of these things. And now, of course, about an hour passed. I didn't leave. And I did go. And, and I said, look, that it's just a lactose intolerance pill. Uh-huh. I'm sorry you found it in the way that you found it. I didn't know it had dropped. But it was like a non-issue. But I had turned it into this, like, I can't even tell you how bad I felt. And I knew that all perspective was lost. I knew it. So that's how high your anxiety can get for no reason. And it took me about two or three weeks to come off of that, to stop hating myself for no reason. So I'm not the best person to ask. No, although I'm I'm still glad I asked it because it shows the, that the struggle continues. And that's why these programs in these forms should never exist. And they should stop existing because of the long-term impact and also the long-term impact of working people into a froth 
which is what you were talking about, about these rap sessions, right? Just working people into that you learned how to do it to yourself. Yes. If there's anything that you can say that kind of unites and binds these people, um, and it's, a, you know, there's not because there is so much contradiction, but we were already coming from a place where we had brains that we were having a hard time calming. And then we were put into a situation where it made it fucking impossible. And in fact, you were kind of told it was enlightenment to feel the opposite. So the more hysterical and the more self-loathing and the more you could express it, the more you proved your loyalty to the doctrine. You know, and I bought into that lock, stock and, and barrel. And um, yeah, I used to think that there was almost like a reverse Pavlov feeling like, because I know that it was true. Like I would hear some of these profit music and I would just start bawling. I would have memories that um, I had conditioned in an earlier profit that would come back and then I could like relay this emotion convincingly. Yeah, that's weird stuff. It is weird stuff. So there are actually more positives in that story than I think you might be giving yourself credit for also, which is probably part of this. <laughs> and one is that you are spending time with family. That is a wonderful thing to be connected to the people in your world and to want to have that connection and to to a great degree know that you can get filled up by that, but also that you're worthy of that and that you're bringing something to their life by being there and to your little nephew by being in his life. And I'm sure with the lessons that you've learned the hard way, you're going to be a wonderful source of teaching, self-acceptance, et cetera. Well, I found that a lot of people don't even realize how much they in fuse part of their healing and the things that they've needed to to learn about themselves in their interactions with others, especially people growing up. And so I think you'll probably play a really nice role with him. What's also really good to do is to acknowledge that you reached out for help, that you were able to quiet your mind, even for a moment to think, what do I need to do as an anchor? Who do I need to contact? And that you made a wise decision about who to call, because sometimes that's part of the goal, not just in reaching out, but being wise about who you choose to connect with. Uh, and it's someone who's going to get it, who's not going to question you, who's not going to say, ah, don't worry. They're going to jump right. They're going to know where where this is coming from and how to respond. So I think that was chosen wisely. And then uh, just as we're finishing up to offer you something else, that's probably also because of your conditioning or your wiring going to make you feel uncomfortable, but I want to offer you a compliment. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I wasn't ready for that. Right, exactly. And don't you don't have to start putting up your. Do you think resistance. you could start out with something really nasty first, though, make you feel comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nope. Sorry, uh, but just the fact that you are when you said I'm the wrong person to ask. I mean, you, you know what you're saying is I still have a lot that I am healing from, and while doing that. I'm writing books and I'm talking to people and I'm learning and I'm interacting with my family and I'm doing, and I'm trying to help. It's like, like being out in the battlefield and you're bleeding, but you go over to help a comrade who's, who's kind of bleeding too. So there is something, something about you that naturally is wanting to not only help yourself get better from this, but to help others. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. So I appreciate that about you. Thank you very much. And I guess um, what I learned from that, because it was a really terrible feeling when it happened, it was even though I knew perspective wise, there was no reason for me to be feeling like that. 
I knew that this was luggage that I was carrying with me and I couldn't take it off. So it's important because this isn't something from like way back. This is like six months ago, you know, it's not, though it is a growth. And then the other thing you say, and this actually really applies to the whole advocacy world. You know, there were definitely times that I, you know, it's the oxygen mask on yourself before you're able to help anybody else. I think that gets lost in the mix a lot. It does get lost in the mix. And, and the other message I think that's important is when you said, as you were telling the story about dropping this lactose intolerant, yeah. <laughs> um, that you said, yeah, when it was, you brought it up, it was a non-issue. Like, yeah. The more it happens that people are not running away from those moments, but are actually facing them and coming to the person who they're sure is going to see them a certain way because they've been conditioned to fear that or because they've already looked down on themselves so tremendously that they're sure the other person is going to do the same. The more you have those moments that dispel that mythology that where you see that it is a non-issue and there are so many things in your life growing up, especially in these programs, that we're non-issues, but we're made into issues. If you can hold on to when you're sure that's that all hell's breaking loose, but it's not, it's just Tuesday, you know, like it's fine. Yeah. Everything's fine. Yeah. Record that if you can and remember how actually you didn't have to be as worried because that message can get lost too. You want to collect those moments because that gives you a sense really of reality. Yeah. Um, and if we if, if we ever do speak again, maybe we could um, go into more how that happens, because, you know, the social isolation and isolation and um, it really can cause this this effect and that um, you can't trust your own intentions anymore. It's really difficult. Let's make a I'm going to make a note. We'll pick this up another time because you're right. You don't have a chance to check it out if you're so socially isolated and you can believe what you've been told in the past as the truth. And it turns out to not be when you have a chance to really check it out. All right. Well, it was great to speak with you and thank you for all that you are doing. And thank you for being so open and sharing the struggles of this and the, the ongoing struggles, but also what's been helpful along the way and what you've learned along the way that you want other people to learn about. So thank you again. Thank you so much for all that you do. And you really have a really wonderful understanding of how all of this plays together from the cults to the, the uh, advertising. You know, it's, it's really something. Thank you. One more thing before you go. See, didn't I tell you last week that this week's episode was going to be very, very powerful. I'm glad you got to hear it. It's not easy to listen to, but you got to hear Zach talk about what he went through and not only what he had to endure, but the lingering effect it has had on him, even though he's done a lot of healing and even though he's done a lot of educating himself and reaching out for help. What I find so unfortunately typical with a lot of groups that wind up being abusive, that wind up being organizations that make people feel very confused, is that there is a certain harshness, whether it's physical, emotional, or both, that they will tell you is for you. 
Many people get away with doing a lot of things to you when they can convince you it's for your benefit. It's the whole idea of tough love. Now, is tough love an okay thing? Up to a point. It means, I suppose, being strict, but still being loving. But this goes beyond. This is about having you get pushed beyond, oftentimes, what your psyche has been conditioned to be able to take or what you can physically take. There's also this other piece, which is a justification for pushing you to the edge, where somehow it's considered enlightenment for your betterment. If you get hysterical, if, as Zach talked about, you have an increase in self-loathing, if your responses are primal, if you seem completely out of control because you were pushed into that state, it somehow proves that this is working. And as Zach said, in the places he was at, it proved your devotion to the doctrine. Now, when you are in that state, you can say and do a lot of things that you might regret later, but also you can say and do a lot of things to other people because you're pushed to do that. You're also pushed to share much more than you would have otherwise. You're pushed to be kind of this person who feels more like a wild animal than a person. And how is that helpful? How does that help someone learn how to do emotional self-regulation? It doesn't. It pushes people to the brink and it pushes people to get to this place of feeling really wildly out of control. And then... Once you get there, there isn't someone to contain you to say, you know, oh, oh, this clearly was too much for your system. Let me help you relax. Let me help you learn how to diffuse this, how to breathe, how to calm. But instead, it's, yeah, this is good. This is working. It reminds me a lot about how within Scientology, there is this purification rundown where they have you sit in saunas for long periods of time where they give you some concoction of different vitamins and minerals that L. Ron Hubbard put together. They give you a ton of niacin. And what does niacin do? It heats up your system. It activates your whole system, makes your heart race. But more than that, it makes your whole body flush so that you turn red. And so it looks like something is working. It looks like there are toxins coming out of your system and you're having to sweat out all these toxins. And there's a visible sign then when you take niacin that it is impacting you, unlike a lot of other things where the impact would be invisible. And I have to think that's done on purpose so that it seems like something is working. But no, it's just that it's like a fire has been set inside your system. And how is that helpful? It often taxes people too much. And there are people who have passed out, people who have had heart issues, people who, again, have been pushed to the brink physiologically, but have been told that this is for their benefit. So if you find that you are being pushed to become hysterical, if you're being pushed to behave in a way where you almost don't recognize yourself, the sounds coming out of you are like a wild animal, where you're more aggressive, where your eyes are wide, where you also are looking inward and seeing darkness, where you're just seeing so much self-loathing, and you're being told by the people around you, this is good, it's not. 
This is not the way healing happens. This is the way you get people worked into a froth. This is the way you make it seem like there's transformation happening. But it's not progressive. It doesn't move people forward. It's actually regressive. It takes you back to a place, a time in your life, a developmental stage where you didn't have the ability to self-regulate. That does not help you at all. So while I think there are some places people go to get out their frustrations and places where they can go smash things and, you know, I'm all for hitting a pillow if you need to or going into a soundproof room and screaming your head off, you want to do that because it's your choice, because you know that's what's going to be helpful to you. And then after you get it out, you want to be able to take a deep breath and enter the world in a calmer state. But if you are around people who are pushing you into that state, it means that wasn't necessarily your choice. And instinctively, you might know on some level that it's not what's right for you. So whenever anyone is pushing you to get out of control and telling you that it's going to help you, I know in a lot of these places, a lot of these teens don't have a choice. They have to go along with it. But make sure that if that does happen to you, you know that this is something that you need to not internalize. This isn't who you are. This is how you are having to behave in order to get through that moment without people yelling at you further that you're not taking this seriously, etc. Play along so that you can get through that moment and then do what you can to advocate to get out of those places that are pushing you to the brink. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www dot podpage dot com forward slash indoctrination.